In dealing with the subject of the holy imagination, no part of this theme is more important than a biblical understanding of the image of God in the earth, which is man and woman. The image of God in the imagination. Any awake person can see there's an all-out attack, a demonic attack, on what it means to be a man or a woman. Once this basic foundational truth is lost in a culture, the culture is truly lost. Insanity takes over. Before we get into our study today, I need to explain one point. Many of my audience are godly, dedicated women. This message will be primarily addressed to men. That doesn't mean there will not be helpful information for women. But keep in mind that much of the suffering of both sexes today is due to an unconscious and, sadly, sometimes conscious rejection of the God-ordained roles of man and woman. A lady who hears this message about courage and whose first thought is one of resentment because it's aimed at blessing and encouraging men, mostly, to walk in their true identity in Christ, is showing by such resentment an already tainted, if not deeply damaged, femininity. Women are not benefited or raised to a higher place by taking on masculine roles in which men have failed. The knee-jerk refusal to even admit that there are such things as masculine versus feminine roles needs to be re-examined in the light of truth and rejected where it has become an enemy of common sense. Stereotyping, which pigeonholes people into unfair and deforming lives, is one thing. Rejecting the obvious realities of what is to be male and what it is to be female is another. Women are raised up on the shoulders of strong, courageous, godly men who are willing and ready to lay down their lives for their wives and their children and for all who are weak and defenseless. That doesn't mean that all women are weak and defenseless, but obviously the context is self-explanatory, and I don't have to belabor the point. That women can manifest the same power and courage as men under certain circumstances is a fact proven by both history and much personal experience. But just as a man can be motherly in certain circumstances, but then only temporarily due to some unusual demands on him, so it is with any woman who's called upon to act as a warrior against evil. She can She must not embrace that role in a spirit of seeking to either supplant men or to prove something to men or to other women or to society or to herself. A woman who does act in such a way may prove herself to be truly grand in the short run. She may deserve every accolade or medal she receives for heroic action in the line of duty, whether as a soldier, a policewoman, or other military or paramilitary roles. But in the long run, it will have a telling negative effect on her soul individually and on the corporate soul of a nation who allows a woman's identity as a woman to be so altered as to fit into a godless unisex world. Ultimately, there can be no such thing as unisex, but anti-sex. The rejection of the God-ordained differences in the sexes. By continued blurring and even erasing of masculine and feminine realities, humanity is destroyed. Simply stated, God did not create women to be men. Even if at times he blesses a woman such as Deborah 
St. Catherine of Siena, Joan of Arc, or millions others whose names are unknown to us, but who are known by God and remembered by Him for the price they had to pay in their battles of life. They acted in place of a man due to unusual circumstances and are rightly honored for it. This is common sense. But like so much else lost to us in our mindless fog of political correctness, common sense sounds like heresy to the fogbound. For the goal of the Reconstructors is not that women be honored, but that she be homogenized, down to non-personhood. This is the meaning, in their view, of equality. Everybody is a nothing. The joy of leftist thinking is that all are made equal and of no value. Equally faceless, equally miserable. One evening, while watching a television news special on the recovery of our dead from the battlefield, I saw a brief but agonizing film clip of a husband receiving the terrible news of his wife's death in battle. I immediately sat down and wrote these words without alteration. Weep for the woman who laid down her life on a battlefield far from her home. Weep for the husband who made her his wife and weep for the fruit of her womb. Weep for the father and motherless child as soldiers bring death to their door. But weep most of all for a land so defiled that it sends wives and mothers to war. I have many beloved relationships related to the military. Some are women who have gone to war. While I honor their personal commitment to their sense of duty, I cannot allow that sense of honor to overshadow my greater sense that a culture that not only encourages but treats as normal the confusion of roles on this matter <clears throat> is a culture that has lost its moral mind. It is the same culture that saves animals but kills its own children, that considers same-sex marriage as valid marriage while disregarding the vows of real marriage, and that makes the state God in place of God. How can I both honor the woman and stand so strongly against the system that allows her in this role? <clears throat> well, it's because I believe there is a difference between the good-hearted woman willingly laying down her life and the wrong-minded system that allows her and even encourages her to do so. When circumstances are not demanding upon all women to take up arms, as has happened from time to time in history, the place of a woman is not alongside man as a soldier. I'm glad for any woman who knows how to shoot, how to stand in the face of evil, how to speak and even fight for the good against evil. <clears throat> I'm not vying for some weak-kneed, willowy, false femininity that faints at the mention of conflict and sits mindlessly helpless in the face of danger like some silly stereotype heroine from a B-grade 50s movie. But we all know, unless we're badly damaged in our own souls, that what I warn against here is a real and present danger to sanity and to national survival. The culture may go on in its seeming progress. In other words, it may continue to function. But the essence of what it means to be truly human will die out along the way. Replaced by something monstrous. It is my hope that this essay will help to awaken in men the treasure chest of godly courage that will call him to stand against this growing evil and to protect what is precious. I long for the day when I no longer have to have conversations with young unmarried men who speak of how weary they are of having to compete with macho women. Only in the fantasy-soaked minds of a deceived woman 
is the thought that such men are complaining because they don't want to have to compete with the equal strength of a strong woman. No, it's simply because men need women, not males with vaginas. Men need helpmeets, not hairy-chested females with no feminine sensitivities. Of course, one argument is that that is the point. Men don't need feminine women. They do just as well to have a younger male as a lover. This is the entire goal of the desexualizing of roles and the homogenizing of the sexes. As one honest lesbian stated, quote, Our goal is not gay marriage, but the destruction of all marriage. So there is freedom to do whatever with whoever, however. As has been stated repeatedly in this study, symbols matter. When the symbols die, we die too. So if the ultimate symbol of God in the earth is his image manifested in man and woman, male and female, husband and wife, father and mother, then the destruction of that image is the ultimate destruction of our humanity. In the introduction to his new book, Seven Men and the Secrets of Their Greatness, Eric Metaxas tells about three men present at the Batman movie theater shooting in Colorado. They're not well known because they were not evil perps, but manly heroes who laid down their lives to save their girlfriends by shielding them from the bullets of a demonic shooter. We say that selfless acts of men are courageous, Metaxas writes. Strength in the service of others is courageous. But did you know that the word courage comes from the Latin word cor, which means heart? So to have courage means to have heart. The Bible exhorts people to, quote, take heart or to be of good courage. The meaning is effectively the same. To have heart is to take courage. This is God's idea of strength, to have the heart of a lion, a man who has heart, is a man who is lion-hearted. You may have noticed that the false macho idea of manliness see, sees having heart as a weak and soft thing in our present vernacular. It misses the true idea of what it means to have heart. Instead, the false macho concept of manhood substitutes having something else. Hint, it starts with a B. Second hint, the Spanish word for it is cojones. But notice that this concept of manhood reduces God's idea of a noble and heroic man down to mere sexual parts. It puts us in mind of the apes and goats, not of lions. Did you ever read the C.S. Lewis essay titled Men Without Chests? Lewis understood that large-hearted men, men with chests, were real men. It's about having a chest and a heart. Until we understand that God is concerned with the size of our hearts and not of our genitals, we can never understand God's idea of true masculinity. Just a side note here. In the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, when Shift the Ape, who is a picture of Antichrist, says to Puzzle, the dumb little donkey who does his bidding, that Shift could not go into the cold water to fetch the lion skin because he says to Puzzle, you remember what weak chests apes always have. It's just a thought. Metaxas goes on to say, quote, So what is heart? Heart is courage. But courage to do what? The courage to do the right thing when all else tells you not to do it. The courage to rise above your surroundings and circumstances. 
the courage to be God's idea of a real man and to give of yourself for others when it costs you to do so and when everything tells you to look out for yourself first, end quote. Can women manifest such courage? Well, of course they can, but not at the expense of true identity as women in relation to men. And that's enough on that subject for now. I want to talk to you about the treasure chest that Joseph had, the the treasure he carried in his chest. The three men who died saving their girlfriends are to be honored for that. In the heat of the sudden battle, there was enough courage in them to not have to try to work out to know what to do, but to simply do what they knew. They laid down their lives for those weaker than them in the heat of the moment. I want to talk here about not the heat of the moment demands, but the less dramatic, more difficult, long-term pressure that seeks to drive us to do the wrong thing. With all due respect to the many who have acted bravely in a heat-of-the-moment situation, how would they fare if the temptation to selfishness or cowardice or lust, or you name it, is a prolonged drip, drip, drip of immoral pressure to give in? Not in a moment, but day in, day out, day in, day out. Would they compromise? Or fully embrace wrong for the short-term pleasure or for the easing of the tension against them? Would they give up in the short term regardless of the destructive cost in the long term? Some of us are great at sprinting but would not fare as well in cross-country. As God asked Jeremiah when he was fainting under the pressure of the battle of his day in chapter 12, verse 5, Jeremiah, if the footmen tire you, what will you do when the horsemen come? I guess we need to mention that there are, sadly, many who have no battle with this at all. They don't give in. They're so pickled in the brine of this selfish culture that they don't even know there's a war on. For them, this message has no meaning. It would take a different approach to try to reach them. We won't spend any time, therefore, on that subject. But for those who are awake and who do know there is a war on, we might rightly say, I'm pretty good in the long stretches when I know what's coming and I can see how to prepare for it. It's in the sudden attacks I get blindsided. That may be true of some, but I don't think it's the norm. The married guy who suddenly encounters some beautiful flirt in his office and learns that, thankfully, she's only there for the afternoon filling in for someone who is coming back to their regular position feels he has had a close call with danger. But what if he finds she's being trained for the new permanent position? If the foot soldier made him tired, what will he do when the horsemen come? How do we become men with the heart to go the full distance and not fall away? In order to answer that vitally important question, we need to at least mention here what the heart is. If the courage to stand is the same as heart, And if watching over our heart is to be done with, quote, all diligence, and if loving the Lord with all our heart is the most important thing in life, and if God cares nothing for the outward appearance but looks only on the heart, we better understand what the heart is. We have probably all seen various diagrams meant to help us understand spirit, soul, and body. Scripture speaks of the tripartite nature of man created in God's image, one person in three aspects. But often, an awake student in these classes will ask, but where is the heart in those three? We would know that the blood pump is 
in the body, right? And where then is the corresponding heart of the soul or of the spirit? Some teachers would say, well, your heart is your spirit. <clears throat> Others will say that the three parts of the soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions, are your heart. And ultimately, that includes your will, your choice-making mechanism. So the heart of your inner being is your will, but if that's true, how did Jesus pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done? If he's loving his Father with all of his heart, and his heart is his will, and he's praying for his will not to be done, but for his Father's will to supersede Jesus' will, then how can his will be his heart? Yeah, it gets complicated. So much so that we end up never really understanding this, and because we don't know biblically how to deal with it, we just slide back into sappy, humanistic, sloppy thinking expressed in some statements like, quote, even though I sin, God knows my heart, or follow your heart and you'll never go wrong, and all sorts of variations on this romanticized view of the heart could be listed ad nauseum. It can be understood, but it cannot be stated in a sound bite. The reason there's so much confusion is because our heart is our true self. When we say, God knows my heart, as if our sinful choice was not really us, we're saying a falsehood meant to obscure this fact. Our sin came from our heart, or we wouldn't have done it. Jesus said so in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. It is what comes out of a person that defiles him. <clears throat> For from out of the heart come evil thoughts, fornications, murders, thefts, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, slander, pride, and foolishness. Not a complete list, obviously. These are attitudes that lead to actions. There's no action without a heart attitude. We may have a wrong action, which is then followed up immediately by an opposite right action that detests what we just did. But both attitudes proceed from the same heart. We curse someone, or lash out at a loved one, or explode with rage, and in a moment we're saying we're sorry, and often we'll say false things like, I didn't mean it, or that was not my true heart, or I take that back. No, we can't get away with that. The only truthful thing to say is, I'm very sorry that came out of my heart, and I'm very sorry for it. Now your I'm sorry is also coming out of your heart. But what does that tell us? That we have a divided heart. Our heart is not pure or single-minded. Yes, the heart has a mind. We even know now physiologically that the heart has neurons. The heart thinks. The heart talks to the brain more than the brain talks to the heart. So even on the physical side of things, there is a unity of function and an interaction between the heart and the brain that speaks of the unity of the person. So David prayed accurately in Psalm 86 verse 11, Lord, unite my heart so that I may fear your name or the New American Standard, or, or the NIV says, give me an undivided heart. James 1, 6-8 says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways because his loyalties are divided like a man trying to stand on two diverging boats. He cannot stand anywhere because he's trying to stand in more than one place. 
Jesus refers to this same thing in Matthew 6, verse 24, where he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will be unstable, wavering. Later in James chapter 4, verse 8, James uses that same term again, the only writer in the New Testament who uses this particular phrase, as if James may have coined it. He says, quote, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here we have all parts of man on deck, the hands of the body, the desires of the heart, and the dual focus of the mind. So what part is the heart? All of it. All our heart is the core of who we really are, expressed in our desires, attitudes, motives, and actions. That it is a mixture is why we have to be sanctified, purified, healed inside, cleansed after our initial conversion. The writer of Hebrews explains that it is such a difficult thing to dissect and label that ultimately only the Holy Spirit by the Word of God can do it. Chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce and divide the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's an action of the soul that can be divided from the spirit, but only God can discern it. There are thoughts of the heart which we may be aware of, but then there are intentions of that same heart we may not be aware of consciously, but which we are responsible for and accountable for, for they emerge from deep within us where we are not in touch, but which we somehow choose to feed, protect, and nurture rather than yield up to God. We need God's grace to ever get to the bottom of such an abyss. As Dallas Willard has rightly said, God allows us to be in a degree of denial about our true condition until his mercy and grace can bring us to the point of being able to face our inner life. Even then, we can only do it with his direct help or we would collapse in despair. Knowing our core is this potentially corrupt and untrustworthy, it is the utmost foolishness to believe commonly romanticized phrases like follow your heart, trust your heart, listen to your heart. If these phrases are meant, as they usually are, only in the context of being your guide, that would make it your God. But God promises to help the heart of any who call on him for help. Psalm thirty-one twenty-four: the Lord will strengthen your heart. We quoted James before who warned about the double-minded man. James says to ask God who gives abundantly and will not give with any restrictions if you ask in faith, trusting God's character. James 1 verses 5 and 6. David cried out in the face of his worst failure. Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. So the heart is the core me, my will, Yes, my desires, yes, my thought life, which I choose and repeatedly practice. Luke 9.47, he knew the thoughts of their hearts. Hebrews 4.12, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Proverbs 23.7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. For some of us, this fact of the mind-heart reveals how divided our hearts really are. 
because sometimes our thoughts are good and sometimes they are angry, lustful, self-pitying, conniving, arrogant. So we bring our hearts before the Lord if we're truly seeking Him with all our hearts. See, some of us think when we hear that we are to love the Lord with all our hearts, that since part of our hearts are still crooked, then we don't love God with all our hearts, so then we stay distant from God. No! That's not what this means. It it means to bring Him all of your heart. To love Him with all your heart. To come naked, honest, open, regularly, daily, hourly, minute by minute, living in His presence with all our inner stuff laid out before Him and not hiding any of it. This is what Jesus meant when he says that we are to have a single eye. Matthew 6.22. The word single here in Greek is haplous. And it, it refers to not folding things in order to hide them. It means unfolded. Without crafty attempts to cover up or obfuscate. To be open, honest, giving, generous. To love God with all our heart doesn't mean to have a heart with no spots in it that needs no grace, but to be open, honest, and generous before him with all that we know how to be, not hiding, not faking, not willfully embracing evil. Okay, so now that we have a tiny bit more understanding of what the heart is, and you should know by now, it's a huge subject that will require more attention in later studies on the healing of the imagination, as well as many other contexts. Let's go back to our original question. How do we prepare our hearts to seek God so that we become firmly established in order that we will have a steadfast, immovable spirit in the face of whatever may come at us, whether the short-term difficulty or the long-term extended temptation? How do we fill our chest with treasure like Joseph filled his chest with treasure? How do we become men and women who are so passionate for the good that we're not susceptible to lower passions even if they attack us for more than one day at a time? Psalm 78 verse 1 through 11 is a description of what Israel failed to do in order to have an established heart, a set steadfast core, a chest which ruled over the appetites and the mere mind. First, Asaph was the writer of this psalm, and he says, quote, Listen, I'm going to tell you a thing which your forefathers already knew and which they told to their children and their children's children about God's faithfulness and his wonderful works. This atmosphere of community faith was meant to help each individual set their hope in God. This psalm opens saying, In verse 5, he says, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to tell their children and their children to their children. Why? Because this is how God roots his people, both individually and corporately, in spiritual reality. First, the testimony was established in Jacob, in how Jacob related intimately to God himself. From this intimacy with God, God revealed his character, purposes, and trustworthiness to Jacob. Joseph grew up hearing these testimonies. They began to lay the foundation upon which Joseph's life would be established. So he then could begin to set his hope, chava, in God. Hope in Hebrew is the same word as to wait upon God, chava, kaveh. 
The pictorial image of both words in Hebrew is one of three chords twined together in an unbreakable bond. Be strong, kazakh. This is very communal, family, personal, visual, imaginative, which is then therefore emotional and becomes food for spirit, soul, and body. Joseph would have been rooted and grounded in this love, this purity, this hope, this sense of destiny, which would have so fed his heart that his chest would have been full and would have therefore had rule and domination over his lower passions while stabilizing his mind, feeding his imagination, and strengthening his will to endure whatever trials he had to face. So Joseph's early years would have been soaked in the stories of testimony, which would have awakened in him his own personal hunger to know God also in that way. God would have drawn Joseph to himself and planted in him a vision of Joseph's destiny in God, which we referred to in our previous hour together. We report. We also referred to the fact that if you don't have such a testimony and such a foundation, you can start building it right now, this very minute. The rehearsing of these realities in Joseph's soul would have gone deep into the very cells of his body. Just as evil penetrates against us and tries to imitate this very soaking effect in order to destroy instead of affirm life. In a future session, we will examine the scientific evidence that the entire physical body carries in its cells a small version of all that is in the heart so that the body remembers and acts out whatever is in its cell memory. But more on that later. So when Joseph's terrible trial came and the iron entered into Joseph till his own soul entered into the iron, it did not deform him, but it transformed him into the very man God could trust and use. Dallas Willard says of this, No one can succeed in mastering feelings in his own or her own life who tries to simply take them on head on and resist or redirect them by willpower in the moment of choice. To adopt that strategy is to radically misunderstand how life and the human will work, or more likely it is to have actually decided deep down to lose the battle and give in. There are two important points, among others, that Dr. Willard brings out in his book, Renovation of the Heart, which I strongly recommend. First, feelings do not have to be catered to. What a thought! Feelings do not have to be catered to. Second, that we can avoid temptation by living in trust in God. Then when temptation does come, it has very little power. This is what Joseph's example teaches us. Dr. Willard goes on to write that the great loss in our present society is human solidarity. What he means by that is in family, neighborhood, school, workplace, and church, there was a solidarity of understanding in our culture at one time that supported all of us to do the right thing. Those under the age of 50 don't remember such a society. I said Joseph's early world was formed not by religiously learning rules, even holy good rules, 
but by living in the very atmosphere of reality that was his family, not merely family alone, but family rooted in transcendent, eternal relationship with the living God. Sexual compulsion is the result of early painful unmet love needs as well as deprivation and abuses. It's too large a subject to pursue here and we have addressed it in many other places before now. But for now we need to note that most sexual compulsions are not about sex. They're about suppressed pain which hooks into the sex drive a drive often made even more compulsive by the sexually charged culture around us. If we think our losses, deprivations, or wounds from unmet love needs make us unable to resist sexual pressure, we have vitally important truth to learn from Joseph that should give us great hope that we can also come to a place of such strength, that we are invulnerable to being seduced and destroyed by sexual compulsion or by any compulsion for that matter. Again, someone might protest that Joseph had a great foundation and early family roots that established him. So when the later battles came, he was ready, but we have already spent time on the fact that any of us, no matter how deprived in our beginnings, can obtain the same solid foundation if we want it and believe God for it. Most current pop TV programs which portray relationship dynamics are played out storylines consisting of emotionally immature young adults with no value system higher than their own momentary fulfillment of pleasure. With no guiding transcendent meaning above them, they are left to make decisions in the heat of the moment based solely on how they feel about things at the moment. They will even believe often that how they feel is the same as reason. This is then the death of reason. This was true back in the days of Seinfeld and Friends and others, but it's now the norm in most television comedies. I would say all of them, really. When the emotional shaking hit Joseph, he neither caved in nor did he become cold and bitter. He acknowledged the pain, but did not consult it as decisive. Did you hear what I just said? He acknowledged the pain, but did not consult it as decisive. All his actions were directed instead by his faith in God's character. Even when he could not feel God, and when all of the circumstances around him shouted that God had left him. Still, if you think that means he simply lived an emotionally shallow, super-faith kind of life, which just chooses to ignore his pain, his loss, his mistreatment, even betrayal, and the agonizing memories, and treat them as unimportant, that would have been just as unhealthy in the other direction. Let's take a look at a few facts maybe we have never noticed before about Joseph. It says in Genesis chapter 42, verse 24, when he saw his brothers, quote, he turned away from them and wept. Then he returned to them. What does that evoke in your imagination? When you, when you don't read it as a Bible verse, but you read it as a statement of visible reality that informs your mind, which informs your imagination, which then feeds your emotions. Get the picture in your mind of 
a man who, in the eyes of his brothers, appears to be second only to Pharaoh of Egypt. They tremble in his presence. He trembles in their presence, but they don't know it because he turns and removes himself quickly, walks swiftly, maybe runs from them so that he can find a place to cry. How many bitter tears. When I say bitter, I don't mean bitter and unforgiveness. I mean the bitterness that comes from having having had to swallow pain, swallow pain, swallow pain. It is no reflection against his faith in God's faithfulness. But still, in the face of God's faithfulness, you suffer when you suffer. You hurt when you hurt. You cry, and the and the tears can be full of the chemistry which comes from a body that is suppressing great suffering. Verse 29 and 30 of chapter 43 says, He looked up and saw his young brother Benjamin and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried from the room, for his heart yearned for his brother, and he sought privacy because he needed to weep. So he entered into his own chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and went out and restrained himself and said, Let food be served. Here again, let these words soak in. He speaks to Benjamin, who is his baby brother, who is the the other child of his mother's womb, whose very presence he thought he would never have again. Now he's inches away from him. He longs to hold him, but he has to restrain himself. But in, in restraining himself... All he can say is, God be gracious to you, my son. And then he hurried from the room, his heart about to explode for Benjamin. And he cries so hard that he has to wash his face and restore himself to some visible form of uh, being able to present himself for dinner. Chapter 45, verses 1 and 2. Then Joseph could not restrain himself any longer before all who stood by him. And he called out, cause everyone to go out from me. So no one stood there with Joseph while he made himself known to his brothers. When the time finally came that he couldn't restrain it anymore, he he made everybody leave. And it says in the next verse, he wept and sobbed so loud that the Egyptians on the other side of the door who just left heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard about it. It was such a dramatic event. His sobbing was so violent he could be heard by the entire area, one translation says. Verse 14 says, He fell on his little brother's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept in Joseph's arms. What I'm hoping you can do here is turn off my voice. Turn off whatever you're listening to. And and soak yourself in the humanity and the human the human emotion of this story. 
Because what I want you to understand is what I, what I want to understand is how the transcendent, eternal, spiritual reality of Joseph's relationship with, with God was intact, but it did not supplant or over, override his humanity or turn him into some kind of spiritual robot, nor did he allow it to the pain of it to turn him into a hard-hearted, bitter, disappointed, twisted person. But the, the, the faith in God and the vision from God and his commitment to God gave him what he needed on the inside to hold on while he waited for God's promise to be fulfilled. And while he's holding on, he's not emotionless. He's not like some Christians I've been around who are so busy trying to prove to God and to me and to whoever else they're talking to and to themselves that they really do trust God, that they absolutely are denying all their humanity, denying all their emotions, denying what it is to be human and just kind of robotically speaking what they call faith confession is some mantra. Joseph's heart is raw from what he's been through, but not bitter. His heart is committed to God, and he's able to stand in the shadow of the cross, because this is all foreshadowing of the cross, standing in the shadow of the cross and suffer, standing and waiting with unfulfilled desires. Can, have you ever had to wait? Have you ever had unfulfilled desires? Have you ever had longings so, so great in you that you thought you wouldn't live through the pain of, of longing for them? And yet, in the face of that longing, you trusted God, you trusted God, you trusted God. Have you ever been there? Of course you have. Every time you've been in that situation, something in you that needed to die, died, and something that needed to live came to life that could only come to life by that death and resurrection process that you're in. So finally, we, we get to chapter 50 in verse 1 where Joseph has been restored to his family, restored to his brothers. Now, his father has died. Did he? What did he think? Did he think of all the years that had been stolen from him and his father? I don't know. That may certainly have passed through his mind. But Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. But we don't. We know what Joseph's ultimate attitude was about this whole thing because he says so in verse twenty. Finally, he sums up the whole matter by saying, "You planned." evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about many who should be kept alive as they are now this day. What you meant for evil, God meant for good that many might live. Can you see how Joseph did not live above his feelings in the sense of refusing to acknowledge them? nor did he allow his feelings to embitter him. He embraced 
his feelings in the proper context at the right time and in the right way. And they were very strong. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of injustice. There were many memories that brought many tears. But above it all was his faith in God, his confidence in God's character, and his assurance that God would turn all of it for uh, his good and God's glory. And so he says so at the end. He said, this was for the saving of many. You meant it for evil, but I've, I've completely forgiven you for it because God turned it for great good. Didn't deny his feelings and did not allow his feelings to rule him and did not allow his feelings to become the definer of reality. That's a very important point. The, the, the emotion here is very deep. The pain is, is obvious. The suffering is obvious, but the suffering is not the final word because he had faith in God and faith in God's promise and God's goodness. Now let's try to sum this up in a concise form we can digest and take home with us. We're talking about having a chest full of the treasury that makes the heart stand for the truth in the face of negative events and all the feelings and emotions that may come from those events. The word sentiment and its related terms have several levels of meaning, some good, some not so good. There's sentimentality, for instance, which usually refers to a sort of rather embarrassing, over-emotional response to people, places, or events. It usually conjures up images in our minds of a slightly sappy and embarrassing display of emotion. Most especially men seek to avoid at all costs. If used in religious context, it would speak of a shallow, purely emotional-based unreliable and weak claim of spiritual transformation and commitment that never really holds up under pressure. But it can also refer to a strong emotional but appropriate response to a momentary reunion with some restored value from the past, even if only in shared memory. Reunions, family reunions, college or high school Military veterans might be examples. Now, of these listed, the veteran might come closest to sharing something greater than mere sentimentality. They may share the second use of the word, and that is sentiment. Sentimentality, usually kind of negative, not always, but kind of. But sentiment, a little more positive. This refers to more than just memory. It refers to a shared experience that is profound in its meaning and results when revisited, especially together with those with whom you experienced the original event, in a resurrection of the emotions and a proper celebration of the memories. We're fully re-engaged with all the feelings, the values, the emotions, when they're presented to us again. Tears in such a setting as this are not embarrassing for discerning and mature people, this, this kind of sentiment is almost entirely rooted in feelings, though it is more than feeling. 
But their right feelings and their right responses to some memory or issue from the past which deserves an emotional response. It's not sheer emotion by itself, but the high emotion is due to a full grasp of the great import of the event itself. For instance, they were sharing the deeply held sentiments one might expect among those who had suffered together during the war. One quote says. Or on a less dramatic but still poignant scale, the whole senior team was almost in tears as the reality set in that this was it. They had just played their final moment of high school football. There was no turning the clock back forever. This is an understandable use of the term sentiment. The opposite of this term, according to Webster's Dictionary, is insensitive. So, sentiment is having the proper emotional response. Insensitive is having no sensitivity to that proper response. To fail to emotionally pick up on the right signals of another. So, sentiment, in this context, is a huge part of fellowship, of caring, familial union with beloved others, and of the right appreciation for the drama of a moment. It's a vital part of being human, of belonging. But sloppy sentimentality is the rape of real, solid sentiment. Where the right sentiments refer to a solid and good store of a treasury of the heart that will call forth right action, sentimentality does the opposite. It doesn't alter lesser feelings in response to a greater, higher good, but it rather makes an idol out of feelings, Feelings for feeling's sake. Leanne warned us of a coming form of this sentimentality which would prove to be poison and has, just exactly as she foresaw. She describes this fast-spreading cancer in Western culture and in the church, where every vice imaginable is excused and in some places even embraced. She points out that as so-called leaders make cute excuses for sinful behaviors, many people who are morally and spiritually awake still don't know how to respond to such weak need confusion because, and I quote Leanne Payne here, few know what to even name it when they encounter it in its exaggerated state. Subtle or plain, subtle, she refers to as that form of compromise. For instance, when a bishop says, unity is more important than our, quote, various ideas about truth. That's a subtle manipulation of bringing in sentiment over truth. Or the more plain, as when on television last night at the so-called Grammy Awards, Time was given for the mockery of a marriage ceremony of 37 same-sex couples, all done in the name of freedom and equality. Well, I continue to quote Leanne here. She says, This vice is hideous because it denies the evilness of evil and therefore makes a nest for it. Did you get that? It denies the evilness of evil and therefore makes a nest for evil. 
It is rampant in the church of today and proudly passes itself off as love. End quote. Real sentiment, that which fills the chest with treasury that the heart can bank on when faced with evil, in order to stand against that evil and for the truth, no matter the cost, certainly has deep felt emotion in it, but it is deeply felt, get this, not because feeling itself is what is being sought, but because no feeling ever can matter more than the truth matters, more than justice matters, more than God himself and his word matters. So when all feeling is made subject to truth, then the proclamation of that truth will awaken deep, passionate feeling for the truth. This was what motivated the lyrics of the battle hymn of this ministry, Against the Night. They are self-explanatory. When men have lost all reason and evil seems to win, then compromise is treason and silence is a sin. Let all who hate the darkness prepare to stand and fight. The children of the morning must stand against the night. When all that wisdom treasures is treated with disgrace, and idols of damnation are set up in their place, when every holy symbol is fading out of sight, the children of the morning must stand against the night. We'll do the work of heaven against a setting sun until the final darkness when no work can be done. Then watching for our bridegroom with oil lamps burning bright, we will worship in the darkness and stand against the night. Against the final darkness no human strength can stand. The evil shall be shattered, but not by human hand. The maker of the morning will come in holy light that burns in righteous anger and wrath against the night. Then comes the final morning, when all will be restored. The shadowlands transformed by the glory of the Lord, when every darkened memory is washed in healing light, where there will be no warfare, for there will be no night. Find some things that you can memorize, that by quoting them, awaken in you the treasury of a chest filled with goodness, with right sentiment, that help you stand firm in the face of evil, in the face of lies, in the face of temptation, in the face of compromise. There are many, many things that you can do to nurture that within you. Scripture memorization, hymn lyric memorization, like what I just shared, poetry, quotations from Scripture. I think of so many quotations from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who stood against the night of the darkness of his Russian nation, and stood seemingly almost completely alone <clears throat> and uh, all of Nightlight, uh, the whole history of Nightlight is filled with examples of what I'm talking about. And so if I start trying to pull up memories of them, I'll, I'll uh, fill our, our remaining time with 
things that are already available in better form and in more complete form in previous nightlights, but memorize the, the kind of poetry that calls you up. Uh, one of them that has always moved me so deeply. He giveth more grace when the burden is greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials his multiplied peace. These words were written by a woman who suffered four major diseases at one time in her body. The loss of her eyesight, constant pain, trouble that you and I, for the most part, can't imagine. Then she wrote the second verse. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, though the day's just just begun, when we have spent all of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His grace has no limit. His love has no measure. His power knows no boundaries known unto men. For out of the treasury storehouse in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Fill your mind, your memory, your heart, your thoughts with things of this caliber of power. And you will find in the moment of real conflict with evil, temptation that seems beyond you, that there is a treasury in your chest that can hold your head in the right focus and keep your body under its proper control until the battle is over and you have won forever. Thank you for listening. God bless you. We'll talk to you, Lord willing, next time.